Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 21st, 2015. This is episode 1579 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today. Michael Bolden from the Tenth Amendment Center is on. We're going to have a deep discussion about a lot of things that are going on, and we're going to learn from each other in the discussion. I think you'll hear that. I think that's one of the things I really like about Michael. He's uh kind of guy, when I bring him on, we always learn from each other, which I think always results in a great show. I'll bring him on in just a bit. First, I want to take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or... The new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, WesternBotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat Uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things 
things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1579 because the episode is 1579. I have two for you today in the TSP Wiki by Alex Shrugged. I have Akbar's Dream and the Right to Tax-Exempt Worship and the Laws of War and a Musketeer Roll Call. I am going to read Akbar's Dream and the Right to Tax-Exempt Worship. Emperor Akbar, the Muslim leader of India, has had a revelation Quote, let men worship as they will, end quote. Under Muslim rule, non-Muslims must pay a special tax to continue their worship. But Emperor Akbar has lifted the tax. He believes in tolerance of different religions, even those he would consider a, as pagan. He allows Hindus who have been forced to convert to Islam to return to Hinduism if they wish. As a result, he has become very popular among the Hindus. Even Tennyson will write a favorable poem called Akbar's Dream. Akbar is the third in what will be a long line of Mughal emperors. In the time, the emperors will lose control of their vast empire, but they will retain their riches and influence. In the modern day, the word Mughal has been transformed into Mogul. It means a rich and powerful person. Apparently, also means an influential person. Since the religious tax did not return until ISIS recently reintroduced the tax. Anyone who refuses to pay the tax is beheaded. So ISIS will tolerate you worshiping something else as long as you pay them a tax for it. Um, there's a lot of things being done, I feel. This is my take here a little bit before I give you Alex's to drag us into the Middle East. But there's no doubt these people are psychotic. There, there's no doubt about that. And, and don't believe for a minute um, the extreme versions of the the you know the alternative view that just basically say oh they're just a bunch of good guys minding their own business and it's all our fault um, a lot of things that are going on over there are our fault like the fact that these people are armed and have US military equipment at their disposal among other things but um, they are nutbags absolute nutbags these people that are part of ISIS and similar components of radical Islam. Uh, let me read my take by Alex Shrugged. It may seem medieval to execute a person for not paying a tax, but try not paying your taxes. Soon the sheriff will show up at your door, and if you resist him too strenuously, he'll shoot you. Often pastors do not speak their mind on certain subjects for you're losing their congregation's tax-exempt status. Without donations, a church can't pay a mortgage or a light bill. The IRS can hassle, hassle church donors by questioning whether donations are tax-deductible or not. According to the IRS pamphlet, see below, a church has automatic tax-exempt status, but many congregations can apply for a 501c3 status so the tax-deductible donations will be hassle-free. What a convenience. Unfortunately, like signing a contract with Satan, the devil is in the details because of the condition placed in the law by Lyndon Johnson. A 501c3 organization limits their right to free speech when they apply. The solution is for churches not to apply, but then they lose the nifty pre-approved status for their donations. Warning, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even pay one on TV. Uh, play one on TV. Yeah, I think that we often look at the barbaric practices of old and think, they used to kill people for whatever, fill in the blank. But we kill people today for many of the same things. We just don't officially kill them for that. Like, 
if you sell cigarettes on the street and you resist any attempt to stop you from doing it, you'll be resisted with force up to and including the point of death. Now, that doesn't mean, again, with that particular instance, that I think for an instant that the officers that arrested that man wanted him dead. I don't think they did. But that's, that's the way it works, you see. In our society, we now live in a place where the state can do nothing at all without the threat of violence at the point of a gun at the end of it. It's the only way the state enforces anything. And I've been challenged on that before, but no one has successfully challenged it. Because what they'll say is, well, okay, let's say you don't pay a parking ticket. Nobody points a gun in your face. But sooner or later, some instance comes up where I am now confronted with the authority that wants their money, and I don't pay them. What do they do? They throw me in jail. What if I refuse to go? What if I resist them? I could be killed for resisting going to jail over a parking ticket. And that, my friends, is the only reason that parking ticket has any teeth at all. That's what the state does. It enforces its will upon society with the threat of violence. That is all they have. That is the only thing they have. And if you've noticed, every move toward liberty, that's actually been a significant move toward liberty, and though I still think we live in a, in a, a far too oppressive society, every move toward liberty has reduced the ability of the state to use violence. That's actually the only thing that leads to liberty. My take by Jack Spierko. Think about that as we discuss some of these issues with Alex, or not Alex Shrug, he's not going to be on the air today, uh, Michael Bolden today from the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, next up today, I am not going to play the dun-dun-dun, but I am going to say that a little bit yesterday anyway, Jack was wrong uh, in my show about scouting. I, I still stand by most of what I said, but one of the things I pointed out was how easy the requirements today might be for camping. Uh, for the camping badge in the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, not so much. Not so much. And I, I do want to make sure when I am wrong about something, I correct it. Especially, you know, like I said yesterday, I have a, an incredible reverence for the quality of the people produced by and that are part of scouting. I really do. I just think that the national organization has gotten out of control and is only going to get worse. That's, if I thought it was going to stop where it is, I, okay, maybe you can live with it, but it's not. It's not going to stop. These stupid things like you can't shoot water pistols at each other anymore because it's not kind, this stuff is going to continue. It's never going to stop. But what are the requirements for earning a camping badge? Uh, I said it might be something like one or two nights out, out in the in camping. It's not. It's not at all. There's a whole bunch of other stuff before you get to this. This is Section 9 in the requirements about safety and all these other things. But these are the actual physical requirements. Show experience in camping by doing the following. Camp a total of at least 20 nights at designated scouting activities or events. One long-term camping experience up to six consecutive nights may be applied toward this requirement. That means you've got to do it multiple times. You can't just go out and stay out for 20 days or two 10-day trips, right? So you only have one really long-term one at a parent. Sleep each night under the sky in a tent you have pitched. If the camp provides a tent that has already been pitched, you do not need to pitch your own tent. That's the one that I'm like, really... Really? I, I don't like that. I think that's part of the experience is pitching your own tent. Um, and I think you learn every time you pitch a tent, you learn something new about pitching it in the right location. I, I really do. Or you develop further skill in the ability to do that. So, um, But I get probably why that's the case. Probably some of the facilities already have them set up or whatever. But I, that's the one that I'm like, eh, really? Um, B, 
On any of these camping experiences, you must do two of the following, only with proper preparation and under qualified supervision. So each trip, you must do at least two of these six things. Hike up a mountain gaining at least 1,000 vertical feet. Backpack, snowshoe, or cross-country ski for at least four miles. Take a bike trip of at least 15 miles or at least four hours. Take a non-motorized trip on water for at least four hours or five miles. Plan and carry out an overnight snow camping experience. Rappel down a rappel route of at least 30 feet or more. And C, perform a conservation project approved by the landowner or land managing agency. So uh, that's pretty extensive. That's pretty extensive. And it's not everything. So I'll, I'll go on record saying that I oversimplified the lax supposed requirements for this particular merit badge in Boy Scouts. I started looking at some of the other ones, and they're all, they're all pretty close to what I remember from when I was a kid. Um, I guess I was misled by an infographic that I can't find. So never trust an infographic. However, like I said, I think there is a lot wrong when you have a $1.2 billion organization dictating to millions of volunteers what they can and cannot do. And I think it goes down a lot to insurances, and it also goes a lot down to the iron law of bureaucracy. On that note, uh, I want to let you know I put out an article today um, that I think might be very interesting to some of you folks, especially those who are not yet got your kids in scouting and are thinking, I want to do this at some point because you have a vested interest after a certain amount of time. And we'll talk about how vested interests get used against you today too. But um, I kind of just kind of glanced over something called the, the Baden-Powell Service Association in my research for yesterday's show. Since then, I've done some additional research on it, and I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed with the independence that the individual organizations are given. It's not everything that I had envisioned with like a sovereign scout type thing, but it's pretty daggone good. And I put out an article about it today, and I have to say, if I was a, a young father again, like I was at one time, and my son was seven, eight years old, and I wanted him in scouts, uh, I would look really hard at finding a group that's already put together, or if necessary, forming my own group uh, under this organization. I am very impressed with the entire philosophy of what they're doing. And by the way, um, the reason scouting even exists is because of Colonel Baden-Powell. Um, that's the whole origin of it. I'm just saying. Anyway. With that, uh, I do want to remind you guys, if you like the show and you like what I do, and maybe even appreciate the fact that when I'm wrong, I admit it, consider supporting the show and the work I do by joining the Member Support Brigade, also known as the MSB. You can learn more about the MSB by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, fire, uh, firefighter, power medic, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Put service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. You do that again before, not after you join. And uh, I really, uh, again, want to uh, thank everyone out there for their service. And I want to point something out. We're coming up on Memorial Day. I will be taking Monday off, shutting the show down. And as you get ready to head into Memorial Day weekend, there's a lot of stuff out there talking about thanking soldiers. Great. Uh, I think thanking soldiers and those who have served makes sense. That's why I do a service discount. 
That's not what Memorial Day is. That's not what Memorial Day is. That's not what Memorial Day is. One more time, just to get it completely through to those that don't want to understand this, that's not Memorial Day. We have another day for that. We call it Veterans Day. Memorial Day is remembering the fallen. The people who are to be remembered on Memorial Day, you cannot thank by shaking their hand. You have to go to a graveyard to thank them. Or you have to go to a wall or a statue or a memorial. Try to remember that. Because I know in the liberty movement, there's, there's also a vibe of anti-soldier. The soldier is among the most noble among us. It's the state that's the problem. And most of us didn't always know that. Try to keep that in mind, too. I've seen people getting in the face of military personnel and calling them murderers and killers. If you get your head knocked in when you do that, you kind of have it coming. I'm just saying. But as we head into this weekend, please remember, this is about the fallen. This is about the fallen. Just wanted to point that out. Anyway, uh, with that, I would like to now uh, talk about better things, I guess. I mean, we're going to talk about some bad things, too. But what can be done about them with our special guest today, Michael Bolden. Michael is kind of like a long-lost brother. The first time I had a conversation with him, I'm like, I swear to God, I know this guy already. Uh, it's awesome when you meet someone like that. He's an awesome guy. He's been doing great work for a lot of years, and he has a lot of great work ahead of him. He's here to talk about all that and how you can be part of it. And with that, hey, Michael, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Jake, Jack, thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here. Cool, man. I'm glad to have you back. You've, you've been on a couple times before. They've always been uh, in, in interviews with, with great feedback from the audience. Uh, but we get new people all the time. So I want to start out with uh, having you introduce yourself a bit. You are uh, the founder and executive director of something called the Tenth Amendment Center. Um, can you tell people kind of what that is, what you do, and how the heck you ended up doing it? Because I know you didn't start your life out like as a nine-year-old political activist. Right. Well, well, Jack, first of all, just, we, we should understand what the Tenth Amendment is. This, is, this was adopted as the, the last amendment of the Bill of Rights, not necessarily in importance. They are all adopted on the same day. And it basically says the federal government is authorized to do a certain number of things that were delegated by the people of the states to the federal government. And everything else should be left back to the people of each specific state. James Madison made this very clear in something, a document called Federalist Paper Number 45, when he said the powers of the federal government are few and defined and those reserved to the states are numerous and indefinite. In other words, you know, all the most important, the most politically divisive things are supposed to be handled by the people of each state. That way you can have all kinds of different political, economic, religious viewpoints all living under a big defense umbrella without having to try to force everyone to be into one system or another. And that's the only way that you can have a peaceful coexistence among people in a country as large as we are today, even as large as it was at the time of the founding. So our work at the Tenth Amendment Center, we really focus on two things. And I didn't, like, you're, you're right, I didn't get into this as a nine-year-old, maybe ten. Okay. Uh, uh, I mean, actually... 
I started out as an anti-war activist after just being totally apathetic for, for many years. I didn't like the idea that the, the U.S. government was basically meddling in everyone's business, always claiming that, you know, we're always under threat. I should be scared. I didn't really feel scared, and it just felt like a scam to me. And I had read enough Orwell as a kid. You know, this is when they still actually – you would still read this as a kid uh, – that it just seemed like we're being ripped off, lied to. It just didn't feel right. Uh, and so that drove my motivation to uh, be an anti-war activist you know, right around the time uh, of the Iraq war just getting started back in, I think it was 2003. Uh, but that was mostly populated by people from the left, uh, socialists, outright communists, one world government type people. And I don't know if it was the way I was overtly raised or just the fact that I was in government-run schools, but personally, I felt a real connection. A lot of it made sense to me, like, oh, yeah, you know, people should be educated and, you know, we don't want people to be poor. We want people to make more money. And I just didn't recognize that the government version, the solution of that was always going to make things worse. So I was definitely identifying uh, with those folks on a lot of the social issues and the government involvement intervention issues except on foreign policy. But then over time, I just started, it just piqued my interest. I learned more and more. I was reading books by Harry Brown and listening to his show while he was still alive. Uh, the, the great libertarian writer Harry uh, taught me a lot of things. And I just started recognizing that, look, when you're talking about government intervention, it isn't just on foreign policy. It's really on everything uh, where it either doesn't fulfill on what is promised or it does something completely opposite. And somehow in there, uh, you know, it wasn't like getting struck by lightning type of thing, but I recognized that this Tenth Amendment thing was a, a proverbial line in the sand, basically saying you can do this stuff and you're not supposed to do all this other stuff, which was like 90 or 95 percent all the other stuff that they're still getting their hands in. And uh, that was that was really the drive. So what we do over the years since I started the organization back in 2006 is we focus on two main things. And one is educating people on these basics what the feds do, and if we're talking about, if we're being conservative, maybe 90% of what they do really isn't authorized by the Constitution as created its original legal document. That's all a violation. So, but the other thing that we do, because, you know, a lot of people talk about this is bad or that's bad. We want to provide people with concrete action steps, like real life solutions on how to stop them. And that I actually think is far more important. You know, on the bad good thing, I want to, before we move forward on this, I want to back up to a couple of things you said. One on the bad good. There's things that I think that the federal government has done that I don't necessarily think are particularly bad in and of themselves, but I don't think that they should be doing them. Sometimes it's not about whether or not the the intention or even the, the, the outcome is good or bad. It's, it's just not their responsibility. In other words, you know, it, it's, it, it is good to, to, to train a child up to be a responsible adult. But you are responsible for your children. And if I come into your home and start telling your kid to do things, even if what I'm saying is not necessarily wrong, but it's in opposition to what you want, and, and I don't have your uh, permission, you haven't granted me the authority to come in and start educating your child, then it isn't whether it's good or bad what I'm teaching them. Is I shouldn't be doing that. And I think there's a lot of things the federal government does that, and this is where people get tripped up. Well, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily opposed to that 
well, but maybe your state should be doing that, or maybe your city should decide whether that not that's right for them. The, the federal government really doesn't have the place to do this because they don't have the authority in their own founding document. Well, and I think the interesting part of that, and I think I probably learned it from Harry Brown, is anytime you empower government, and you can say this to every level. For our, for my work, it focuses on the federal government, but this this works at every level. Anytime you empower government to do something you want it to do, you're also empowering your opponents to use that government to do exactly opposite yeah. to you. So, and that gets really to what you're talking about there, Jack. Like maybe I like the idea of children being educated, so I'm going to go to the federal government and force all this spending to somehow get children educated. And let's say it actually works and it's cost effective. Well, someone else can come around and use that power to educate children in ways that you think are disgusting or repulsive to your beliefs. And you know that's the kind of the core of why the founders created this system where you had a federal government, a central or national government we could call it today, that's only supposed to do a few things. And all these other things would be left to communities, to individuals, to states to determine how they saw fit. Yeah, don't you see that every day with just this grand dichotomy that we have where I've seen people right now screaming to high heaven over civil liberties violations, et cetera, under the Obama administration. But when it was under the Bush administration, you know, it really wasn't that big a deal because it wasn't affecting anybody I cared about. And that's the whole point is the grander the authority, the larger the authoritative group, the more people it can basically trample on who have no recourse. Well, and what's important is to, you know, when we talk about solutions is to understand basically what we're facing. And part of it is what you're saying there, Jack. But the other part is, it's my view, and I think there's three things that actually happen in just the last probably week, maybe a little bit longer that back this up, that even when the federal government seems to be doing something good, it's, <laughs> it's, it's either screwing us all over or it's lipstick on a pig. You know, either way, it's not good. And the first one, if we really look at it closely, is this so-called federal court ruling that supposedly struck down NSA spying. I don't oh, know if yeah. you talked about that at all, but there's about a week or so ago, they there was this federal court that, well, the headline said federal court strikes down NSA spying. And a lot of people are thinking, wow, great, the courts yeah. are doing what they're supposed to do. This is awesome. Well, first of all, Number one, the spying is continuing today after it supposedly yeah. was struck down. Yeah. Second of all, the court never even called it unconstitutional. The only thing it said was that the, the, the spying was not authorized under what Congress said it could do under the Patriot Act. And yep. on top of it, it even said, hey, if Congress decides to authorize it, then it's no so, problem. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so as long as Congress says something, then everything's fine. So this is actually something, an example of how well, when the federal government seems to be doing something, it's actually making something worse. Because here we're talking about a federal court now basically adding to all the court precedent saying that, well, the Fourth Amendment doesn't even count. It doesn't matter. We're not going to talk about it. And if Congress wants to do something, it's fine. We just have to get them to expressly authorize it. We're not even going to do anything to stop them, even though they haven't authorized it. So the, what I what I got out of that was the the, the uh, a federal court stated that the United States government is currently violating federal law and decided to do absolutely the square root of nothing about it. Indeed, right? Like so if if I was in violation of federal law. 
or you were in violation of federal law, I don't think we would able to be able to just carry on about our merry way and, and be told, now you guys pass a law that says you're allowed to do that uh, in the next couple of years or so. We don't want to see you in here again. We would probably go to jail, pay a fine, both, have our life ruined. But no one has suffered a single consequence as a result of a federal court ruling that the government's violating its own law. Not a single person, and no one ever will. Yeah, and you know that. I know that. I'm sure a lot of your your audience knows that. A lot of the general public does not. They read headlines. They spend time on Reddit. They see 140 characters on tweet, Twitter, and then they say, okay, NSA spying is done. But yeah, it yeah, isn't, yeah, right. But it isn't. That's what I'm saying. Like that's the danger of this. Like so now it's like, oh, that Snowden thing. They took care of that. We're, we're all good now. Just fire up your iPhone and don't worry about it anymore. And I, I, it, to me, I just feel like some of that has to be by design. It works too perfectly otherwise. Well, it does. And same, <laughs> so did Obama's, uh, like, realization of this executive order that he actually made some months ago. But this report, uh, I think it was just on Monday of this week about providing military equipment to local police. The yeah. headlines again were talking about how, oh, Obama's banning and restricting mm-hmm. some military equipment to local police. First of all, there's a list of stuff that they banned. And None of the stuff on there wasn't either already banned or almost never transferred. So that was just window dressing. And then on top of it, the, the stuff that's restricted, like drones, M16s, MRAP, these armored Bearcat things, these tank-resistant vehicles, stuff that you would see in Fallujah, you're not supposed to see in Boise, Idaho. This stuff is going to continue as long as, and get this, the local government comes up with a policy for use of them that the federal government agrees with that doesn't violate constitutional rights. So if we go back to the NSA thing, (laughs) every level of these people think that spying on us is constitutional. How does that play out when it comes to using military equipment on local communities? Their version of what's constitutional is crap. Yeah, and I agree. That's another thing I wanted to revisit with you that you said in your kind of opening was that about if we were con- if we're going to be conservative, ninety percent of what the federal government's doing is unconstitutional. I agree with that number. But I would say this: if it was exactly reversed, if only ten percent of what the federal government was doing is unconstitutional, then the average American should be so outraged that their eyeballs should be blowing out of their ears, and no one True. seems to care. And I think that sometimes if you say something like 90% of what they do is unconstitutional, people are like, yeah, whatever, roll their eyes. But I wonder if the average person even gets that. Like, if they're doing one thing that's unconstitutional, we should be outraged as a public because that is the, they talk about the, uh, the, like the, the grand bargain or the, the social contract or whatever, right? Well, that is their agreement. That is their agreement they wrote, sold to us. And if you can't keep your own agreements, well, you're not keeping any other ones. Well, what people tend to do is they they say, let's vote the bums out. I mean, (laughs) the last hundred years or so shows that no matter what bums are in there, government power continues to grow. The economy keeps getting more damaged. The dollar keeps reducing in value. Our liberties keep getting taken away more and more. And just this, this, again, I think it's just in the last week, 
the supposed Republican takeover of Congress pr- proves to be just another joke. Voting bums out is a waste. The Republicans proposed or passed this new budget, and it doesn't eliminate funding for anything except for Obamacare because they I, they must see that as like politically advantageous. Sure. But e- even though they're re- taking funding away from Obamacare, they're still growing spending over last year. So they're taking that funding and they're adding it to other stuff. And it's again worse. So if you're thinking, well, you know, finally we sent a message. We got the establishment Democrats out. Well, all you did was you helped some new people, new faces, take your money and take your rights and in in worse and worse ways than it was just a couple years ago. And you and I both know that the entire concept of that they've defunded parts of Obamacare or whatever is nothing but the hot chick the magician uses <laughs> yeah. is making the tiger appear in the cage, right? That That's all completely smoke and mirrors. That, that Not a single thing about Obamacare is going to change under this. And this is the perfect time for them to put something like that up there so, you know, the, the president can veto it or whatever, and, and they can say, we tried. And, and then by the time they, they get their guy into the White House, as they do, which is what I think will happen in 2016, they'll go, too late now, it's too entrenched, we can't, we, you know, we gotta deal with it. And, and by the way, you inspired an awesome meme, uh, last time you were on that I put together. And it was <laughs> yes. the founding fathers, you know, let's, let's repeal and replace the stamp act with something better. Said no <laughs> founding father ever. And, exactly. And, and, well, I thought that was cool. It made me think of another meme while you were talking there about voting the bums out. I made one a little bit before that. And it was a, a shark swimming through the water with these huge teeth. And basically, my point was that changing politicians is like expecting that next row of teeth that pop in to change the nature of the shark. It's the shark that does what the shark does. And right. teeth are just the instrument. And that's all our Congress is at this point, is, is the teeth of the shark. The system itself is preset. It, it's worse than a shark. At least a shark might change direction. Th- this system is, is, is on autopilot at this point. And it's being run by people with a remote control uh, that sit at the top of, of, of the pyramid that you and I never see. Yeah, so I guess my view on the whole thing is really is if you're like putting a dime of your money or an ounce of your energy on trying to stop federal power in Washington, D.C., that means federal elections, even yeah. for the best guys – you're wasting your time because it just doesn't change. And if a business had a hundred years of the exact same progress, it would either be awesome because it was growing, or if they kept screwing it up and wasting money, they would be out of business. Correct. So the idea that we look to, I mean, a hundred years probably is too short. Let's say 150 years or 50 years, 10 years of, of negative results, 20 years of negative results. And we're still saying, well, let's continue to, using the same strategy that we've been using. Well, the strategy isn't working, even if in theory or in principle, getting new people in there is a way to start fresh. The way it's working out in practice is it, it's not working. So you mentioned Jefferson. Uh, uh, you know, he said, look, anytime the federal government does anything outside the Constitution, I don't actually maybe you didn't mention Jefferson. I think you just mentioned the, the principle. And this is what Jefferson said. Like, hey, in 19, 1798, he was talking about the Alien and Sedition Acts. And he said, like, anytime the feds do anything that's undelegated, 
You're supposed to resist it on a state level. He used the term nullification. That's what we call it. We, we work to put this into practice on state, local, individual, community level on virtually every issue across the political spectrum. And you're not supposed to sit around and wait two or four or six years for some Supreme Court ruling or a federal court ruling to sound good but not really do anything. And you're not supposed to vote bums out to get new bums. And you're not supposed to march on Washington, D.C. because none of this stuff, you know, gives results. What gives results, Jefferson, Madison, and others told us, is some form of resistance, you know, basically opting out, not participating, creating such roadblocks for implementation that they come come apart at the seams. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I keep petting the fox. I keep feeding him. <laughs> I, I keep taking him to the vet and having him groomed. And for some reason, my chickens... They just keep disappearing from my chicken house. I, in fact, I'm all down to ducks now. All the chickens are gone. I mean, that's, that is the philosophy you're talking about. But, but the solution you're talking about is what we're here to talk about. So kind of moving into that, it is the state that is supposed to resu- re- resist the federal government. And I think part of why they don't today is because, well, their bread's buttered there too. And yeah. most of the people in state legislatures dream of moving up, right? Going yes. to big leagues. But but we are making some progress. So can you talk about some of the most prominent things we've seen happen at the state level, um, you know, maybe this year? Yeah, well, actually, there are, you know, it's an absolute fact that the states are horrible, but they're less horrible than Washington, D.C. And the worst politicians, the ones that really have no principle, the spineless ones, the one that just go with the wind are actually they can actually help our cause for liberty because as long as the wind is blowing in the right direction, they have no principles. They might do the right thing once in a while because they just want to be popular. They're, they're that, they're that frat boy in, in, you know, in college. It just wants to be cool and doesn't care about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're that guy. And so let's, let's think of that mentality and put it into practice. But we do have to keep in mind that even though that, like our work focuses heavily on state level resistance to federal power, it really takes individual action to either pressure the state resistance or to make, you know, state compliance just ineffective. So one example of the states doing something just this year. So in the last few months, we've had 12 states pass a bill called a right to try act. So the FDA has this this law, this rule set of rules under the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act that prohibits general access to people uh, using experimental drugs or medication, even if you're going to die. So your doctor tells you, well, you're going to die in two months. But, you know, there's this experimental treatment that, you know, it might kill you next week, but it, you might live. Do you want to try it? Well, the federal government says you don't have the authority to make that choice over your own, over your own health, your life, your death, whatever risk you want to take for yourself. You're not allowed. You're not being free is dangerous. And so the feds don't allow that. But these 12 states that have actually passed laws that bypass the feds and say, you know what? If you're ill, if you're terminally ill and your doctor says you want to do this, uh, you have the free choice to do it. We're not going to require any insurance to cover it. It's just going to be your choice. Sure. And, and I think that's really huge. I mean, and it's not just right or left wing states. I mean, Montana's put this into law, uh, Virginia, Wyoming. 
Tennessee, Minnesota. We're expecting Illinois to have it passed soon, California very likely. So across the political spectrum, we can see people saying, you know what, someone's dying. Let's not block their access to make a choice for themselves. I think that's huge. Um, were you going to say something there, Jack? No, I was just thinking when you're talking about being across the political spectrum, it makes me think of a, a meme that's going around now as well that basically says something to the effect of, I want gay married couples to yes. be able to defend their marijuana fields with assault weapons. And yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's just kind of like what popped into my head when you're talking. I, I, I am encouraged when I see two states with radically different socioeconomic political spectrums within them, realizing the same thing that like, okay, look, this is stupid and the federal government's in the way. And we're just not going to tolerate this. We're, we're just not. And, and then watching the federal government when a state does something like that go, well, you can't do that. And they go, yeah, well, we're doing it. And then watching how quickly it all just falls apart because that's what's happened with a lot of things like, like medical marijuana and, and, and uh, recreational marijuana. Yeah. Like the, and you have idiots out there like Chris Christie saying, if I get elected, I would, I would start enforcing this. No, you won't. No, he doesn't have a There's no money for it. That dude doesn't have a chance. I mean, oh, he's a complete idiot. He just wants to be – well, that's a whole nother. He's that yeah. rat guy, basically. That guy, he's going to sell some books someday. That's all this is about. This guy knows he's not going to D.C. You know, I like that you brought up medical marijuana because the cousin there or the sister plant, industrial hemp, I think is extremely important. Right here at my home office, you know, we've got a patio door that doesn't stay open, but there's a gate that I can tie it to and I use industry, I use a hemp rope to do that. Well, that hemp is not, it's, it's prohibited from being farmed in the United States by the federal government. The U.S. is the world's number one importer of raw industrial hemp. The two top exporters in the world are China and then Canada. So federal prohibition, especially at a time when there's economic uh, difficulty, is forcing farmers to, to like give up crops that they could make tons of money on. Well, a number of states have already legalized this. In, in, in Colorado, for example, farmers in 2013, I think it was two summers ago, they already started planting and harvesting crops even though they weren't allowed to by anybody. Even on the state level, they weren't allowed to yet. They just started doing it. On top of it, Vermont, uh, Oregon, uh, South Carolina, and then I think Tennessee are already moving forward with, with hemp production programs. North Dakota just this year passed a, a law to allow the same. Maine is very close. Alaska, maybe. So we're seeing some movement on hemp. Uh, so some people, they talk about this and they say, well, there's this thing that happened back in 2014 where Obama said, you know, signed this bill that said, you know, they're not going to prosecute hemp farming anymore. But there's a caveat to that. The federal government is basically telling the states, you can grow hemp if and only if it's done by an academic institution for research purposes. They yeah. don't allow general farmers or people in their backyard to grow hemp. They definitely don't allow it to be bought and sold commercially because that's just would just be horrible to whatever interests they're protecting in China. Uh, but these states are actually allowing out beyond what the federal government says is OK. They're allowing it to be grown by individuals by businesses and for commercial purposes. And we actually just reported last week on this really cool thing that happened in Colorado, this first major 
hemp production plant, first large-scale processing plant, just, uh, you know, really is getting underway there in Colorado. And I think this is an example of how individual action might even be more important than the state law. I think the state law probably that, that authorized the hemp farming in Colorado encouraged people to take action. But if no one does anything, then the status quo remains. So it really is up to individuals to say, you know what, we're going to farm. And then it's up to other people to say, you know, we want to purchase that product from the people here in Colorado rather than the people in China or, or Canada. Not that they're bad people over there or anything, but I want to support this business. Well, just then I want to buy a chicken from the guy down the road and I want right. to sell him my eggs because I want to do business locally when I can. Exactly. You want to support people who might be your, maybe you know the guy too. So the people who are farming, they, this opens up the market. The, the law opened up the market. Actually, the, I think the people that started farming in Colorado were, even though they did it before the state authorized it, they saw it on the horizon and just took advantage of it. But what's even more important is that people started investing money in a business and they're, they're doing processing for commercial purposes that isn't allowed. It was on the ABC local news in, in Denver. This new cash crop. Hemp is legal and now people are doing, but it's only legal on a state level. The feds still consider it illegal. So it's this combination of the state passing a law defying the feds and then people actually having the courage to do something about it because if you pass a law saying that people can try experimental drugs and no one does anything it doesn't matter who cares it takes the action of individuals and groups of people to really have an effect and in practice nullify what government at any level is trying to do to us well and i think that i, I don't feel that for nine out of ten people listening today that I need to say this, but for <laughs> one in ten I do, if somebody takes that piece of rope that you have your door tied open with and smokes it, they're not going to get high. Uh, and the type of hemp you're talking about in this particular instance isn't going to get anybody high. And the fact that it was ever made illegal uh, under any auspices was never to do anything with the, with the drug war because it's not a drug. And, it, and it, there certainly must be financial interests that were set up, and it was lumped in with that. Um, I guess the excuse is they, you know, they won't know if it is or it isn't. And I, if a junkie on the street can tell you if it is or it isn't, then I... I think we can trust law enforcement to figure that out, and they're supposed to test things anyway. Um, additionally, I mean, you're going to get higher smoking Mexican tarragon that you can buy at Home Depot. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Real, yeah, it's, it's not that great or anything, but it'll have a bigger effect. Trust me, it's uh, it's a, it's an old school uh, South uh, South and Central American medicinal um, that you can buy to put in your garden. It, that's okay, but industrial hemp. That's used to make rope, and and by the way, the seed is one of the more high value food products in the yeah. world, and it grows anywhere, and it doesn't need all the pesticides and herbicides and every everything else. So there's about a billion products that can be made from hemp, and if we were growing it and making it right here in America, we might just start using it for some of those things. Um, you start to see one why, but you also see the ridiculousness, like. Why would Washington, D.C. ever have the authority to do that anyway? I mean, if Florida wants to do it, as dumb as it would be, let Florida do it, and then I can go to Georgia and grow all of it I want. Right, and then they lose out on the money. Uh, you know, it, That's exactly the point. And I think the bigger point on top of it is the nature of government, as you and I both know, is that they're always going to want to do things that they shouldn't be doing. They always want more power. They always want to scratch the backs of 
political supporters and they want to crush political opponents. And the fact that hemp is something that can be grown very easily in all kinds of climates and it doesn't require the pesticides that the huge companies, you know, like Monsanto make, for example, uh, or it it attacks the cotton industry because it can be used for clothing and the, the lumber industry because it can be used for paper. You know, the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, I believe, was written on hemp paper. It can be used for oil, for food. So there's lots of industries that like the fact that hemp is illegal. There's lots of politicians that like the status quo. So they're always going to do this. What's the bigger picture, though, is that people turn a blind eye to it and let it happen for one reason or another. And I think things are kind of coming to a head where we, we the people, not necessarily you and I, uh, but people have turned a blind eye for so many decades that they're doing so much stuff that it's just becoming a stark reminder everywhere that people turn that things kind of suck. You know, yeah. this isn't the, this isn't the land of the free by any stretch of the imagination. I think with all the information coming out, it's kind of like people have finally looked at that little scab and picked at it a little bit and saw the gangrenous wound that's under there and went, holy crap. Like, you know, like, ah, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And, and then you realize all these little nicks are connected by this, this disease that's, that's infected the entire patient. Um, on that note, one of the things that I have been most concerned with is the level of absolute complete contempt that the government seems to have for the right to privacy in people. You know, you talked about it with the NSA, uh, supposedly being struck down by the federal court that didn't do anything. But somebody trying to do something right up your alley was the state of Utah with HB 150. Right. Basically, we shut the water off and, and, and your computers will burn up. So where where has that gone? Has that gone <laughs> anywhere? Well, it was actually getting quite a bit of attention, and we thought it was going to move to the House floor. But would you believe this? <laughs> the, uh, uh, some general from, I'm not sure if it was from the National Guard, came in and had a personal conversation. This is what we know from the inside people. Okay. With, with a committee chairman, the guy that basically schedules it for a hearing, and the bill was never heard from again. So, <laughs> so we know that this is a very effective method to stop federal spying because if they send a, a, an army general in to have a talk about how the bill should go nowhere, we know it's really good. So even though that is a, is a, a defeat in some way. I actually am always looking on the positive side of things. We're basically smoking the rats out of their holes. So we smoke someone out. We know how to target. We're going to continue to push on that level. But surveillance goes beyond just what the NSA does. And states are actually taking action in, in various levels on all kinds of programs. So surveillance covers NSA spying, collecting all the data. It covers a whole slew, thousands of government-run drones that will be in the skies with cameras able to monitor people with facial recognition software all over the place. It covers uh, a license plate tracking program where the highway cameras around there are taking pictures of the people in the cars with facial recognition and pictures of license plates and turning it over to the drug enforcement agency, the federal government, so they can track your whereabouts by your license plate. So surveillance comes in. There's Stingray devices. FBI takes these devices. They either give money to local law enforcement or they give them the devices, and then they go and mimic 
mimic a cell phone tower in a certain neighborhood and it collects all of the activity coming in and out. So what happens is instead of connecting to the tower, it connects to the FBI funded device operated by local law enforcement and then they pass all that info to the Fed. So it's very important for people to focus on privacy, pro-privacy legislation and actions on a state and local level. So, for example, just this year, Virginia, North Dakota and Florida have passed very strong restrictions on government use of drones in the state by state, local law enforcement, local agencies, basically saying that, look, if you're going to be using it for surveillance, it has to be with a warrant based on probable cause, and it can't just be for, you know, just watching everybody in an area. In Washington state, they restricted the use of these stingray devices that I just described without a warrant. In, uh, man, I think it was Virginia. I'm trying to think of the other state that restricted the use of these license plate readers saying that they can't pass the data on to the federal government. So then you can't have this tracking program that's happening on a national level. So there's some very positive things happening to advance privacy and protect it from from overreach, not just on the federal level, but protecting it on a state level actually helps protecting it on a federal level, too. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's needed. I'll give you another example of one of these programs that I became aware of. One of my listeners wrote in, he's a, a police officer, and didn't want to give away exactly where, but he did say within the state of Texas. And obviously he fears for his career by giving me this information. Um, turned out that he was talking to one of the guys that works at desk at one of their facilities with all this new high-tech equipment in it that the federal government gave them. And they do fingerprinting. For people that want, for instance, a concealed carry license. Yes. Um, and, you know, there might be many reasons you have to go down to your police department and get fingerprinting done to get certain things done. That's just one example. And, and what he was doing there uh, for somebody else getting some information or something that, that brought it up. But there's all these cameras that are in the facility now. And he basically asked the guy, he's like, where do we get all this stuff? And he says, well, the federal government gave it to us. And it turns out you go in there and get fingerprinted and you get on these cameras and it forms a, a, a file on you and a file on everybody else that's there at that time. So the fact, let's say I went there and you went there on the same day for totally different bits of business. You're not even there for fingerprinting. I am. But the camera identifies you and goes, oh, that's, that's Michael Bolden from the 10th Amendment Center. And I go in and get my fingerprints done and I give an ID, et cetera. So they absolutely know that's, that's Jack Spierko. Mm -hmm. Well, then there's now a, a, in, in the federal database, an associate, we're basically considered associates because we occupy the same space. And that this is all going to the FBI, and they're the source of all this gear. And Man. you start looking at that, and you go, you know what? If this technology existed in 1925, there probably wouldn't be a Jewish person left on planet Earth. True, true. You know, and I'm yep. not saying that's where we're going. I'm saying that's that's the risk this type of shit, you know, represents to people in in the world. Because who's going to control this place 50 years from now? You don't know. I know. <laughs> it's going to be some horrible politician, just like he's controlling this place today. So giving them more and more technology to use is really bad. You know, this this whole what you're talking about here is something we actually did some research on recently. You know, a lot of people focus on this 1033 Pentagon program transferring military equipment to local police. Milita it's basically 
federally militarizing local police. Well, something we did research on is this thing called a NSA gadget transfer program, which is basically what you're describing. Mm. Uh, you know, the thing, the one that's most interesting is something called Renoir. It's, they've got a whole patent for it. It's an application that allows them to use these, uh, large data sets and figure out, like, basically turns everybody into a suspect because they're making these connections one, two, three, four hops down and it's just how you're describing it plays out and then all of a sudden you can be tracked or the next person can be tracked and uh, this is really bad stuff because these federal programs are turning our local law enforcement from peace officers into federal spies, federal military people, basically federal agents because they're helping the federal government carry out all these programs or things that they want want to have done well and i think that they're i think they're doing that not just because the capability exists there so in other words you talk a lot about how we can use state-based nullification of the federal government because they need the states right they don't have the resources to do all this stuff as the federal they have the money but not the 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 the, the leg power they don't have the on the ground resources and they never can they need to buy in and that's why it works so there's that that Part of why they do it is because the the institutions are there, the structures there. We can mm -hmm. use these facilities. But the other thing that exists inside these departments, since everybody that's and I don't mean to piss off anybody that's in law enforcement, but this is a fact. Everybody that's in law enforcement is looking at a decent retirement in, in 30 years. Just pretty much any organization across the country. Not maybe not every single one of them, but most of them. And you ain't getting much for 15, right? Like nothing. And and they know that. And a person who's been in any position, you see it with soldiers all the time. They really want to get out of the Army, but they're at 16 years. The hell with it. Four more to get my retirement, right? So what what that does is you get a person that's been around 10, 15 years, and an admit, now they're up into an administrative position off the street, and you put them in charge of one of these programs. Now they've got a cush desk job. Their job's insured with federal money. And if they make any waves, all of that vested time they have could be for nothing. So you, you end up with a perfect target because the person's already in a position where they've been forced to do things they would rather not do because they believe in what they're doing. You make them do a little bit more of it, and then you've got them on a treble hook, right? I mean, they're not coming off at that point. And I, I believe that they know that's I, I guarantee you they're not putting you know officers with two years of experience on these assignments. They're putting the experienced guy with the vested time into them based on the feedback I've gotten anyway. You know, if you changed a few things in that description to instead of talking about government and law enforcement, you talked about the mafia and hitmen. That's exactly how it works there, too. You know, you get somebody, you know, uh, maybe uh, we're helping the community, you know, protecting them from that other gang. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, you keep ramping it up from there. But government works kind of like the mafia of the television stories works. And it's very unfortunate because there are people who get into law enforcement, obviously, who, who want to help people. But uh, much of how it plays out today, unfortunately, is not helping people. Local law enforcement spends a considerable amount of their time helping the federal government enforce federal laws and federal programs. Most, in fact, I think it's 90% is what the FBI statistics came out. 90% of marijuana arrests are handled by federal, local, not federal. Mm -hmm. 
uh, gun gun arrests. I don't know. Our numbers are not like concrete, but our, the early research we've done is about 80 percent of federal gun control measures are done by the locals. Like, mm. They shouldn't be doing this at all. Look, yeah. part, partnerships don't work too well when half the team quits. So if the federal government wants to have their gun control, but they rely on state and local law enforcement to do it, they can have the law in the book, but it's not going to do anything. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. there's laws on the books in some state against pre premarital sex. Well, that law doesn't work, and no one's trying to get it repealed because no one cares. No, no one cares. It's become irrelevant. There's I think there's still a law in one state about the first cars where a guy had to walk in front of the car at certain times with a lantern and had to be <laughs> six feet tall. And no one's like even bothered to repeal that because it's obscenely ridiculous. Um, but you're making a good point. Like so, this is a point I made to a, my brother-in-law, who's a police officer. About a, a, I guess you'd call him my nephew-in-law. There's also a police officer in Colorado, and he said, "Well, I was talking to him, and you guys think this legalizing this drug stuff is is the way to go, and, and and all, and but they're dealing with trouble up there now, where people are bringing drugs into Colorado because it's legal to sell once it's there." And I'm like, "Well, that sounds like it's the federal government's problem to me." And he goes, "I oh. can't believe you're saying that of all because he knows I'm down on the Fed." I'm like, "Well, if 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 his organization told the federal government that's your problem." And they only worried about the laws within the state of Colorado. The reason I'm okay with that is because nothing would get done. Right. Damn, if, if Colorado says it's legal to have marijuana in Colorado, I don't care where it was grown. I, I really don't. And I don't think the most people that, that are for that law care either. Um, you're just back to protectionism then. Now the, so now what you're telling me is the problem is that it, it, you are acting as a protectionist organization to ensure that only the people that are licensed by the state are profiting from the law that the state passed. So you're right into the mafia then. So basically it's the state mafia being used by the federal mafia to ensure the profits of the state head mafia. Well, and I think this is where, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about previously. It really gets down to individuals making better choices about what's good for themselves and for people in the community. Now, maybe these guys, you know, you know, trying to enforce this protection racket, that's obviously not a good choice in our view. But the people are saying, you know what, I can bring this in, you know, and then the other people purchasing from them, I mean, these are people taking action to do what they believe is right, whether the law tells them they can or not. And I think society needs to move more in that direction. And while we focus mostly on states taking this action, the states don't take that action without groups of people doing it on large scale. And that's really the core of what we're talking about here. We don't need permission to live free. We should live free whether government wants us to or not. Gee, you sound like a founding father. <laughs> All I have is parakeets. I have no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously though, has there been much action at the state level this year on gun control? Well, you kind of mentioned that a little bit there in passing. There, there has been a lot of action, but there's been heavy. Like we faced the heaviest resistance on trying to stop federal gun control on a state level. And the resistance didn't come from the Bloomberg organizations. It came from law enforcement organizations. Mm -hmm. 
every single state, and we even got some behind-the-scenes lobbying documents in, in New Hampshire. We might put together a short documentary film on this at some point because we're starting to collect and really document what's going on. But like in New Hampshire, there was this really good bill to say that the state would not participate in the enforcement of any federal gun control measure. Just They're just not going to do it. And the number one people, in fact, it may have been the only ones lobbying against it, were the New Hampshire State Police and uh, New Hampshire Sheriff's Association, just all the, the, the law enforcement organizations saying we need to be able to, to have a clear path where this is going to interfere within our relationships with our federal partners. It's the same language in every state. So if it happens in Arizona, if it happens in Montana, it's always the same type of thing. We don't want to have the law enforcement confused about what they're enforcing. In other words, they just want the status quo. But we did see two very good bills to, to help protect the right to keep and bear arms pass in state. So in Tennessee, they passed a bill that sets the foundation to withdraw all state resources and enforcement from not just current, but anything past, present, or future. Like there's gonna, there needs to be some further action on that in Tennessee, but the, the foundation has been set to make this happen. And then in Indiana, a really interesting bill passed that doesn't directly take on the feds, but it repealed the state level prohibition on sh sawed off shotguns. And I'm not a firearm expert at all, but my understanding is that a, sh a sawed off shotgun is a really good self defense mechanism in a close quarter, like in your home. Like if you've got an intruder and you're just grabbing at something and you just want to kind of, you can't really see the sawed off shotgun is really good. So this can help, you know, elderly people, for example, someone who really needs more protection than, than maybe the rest of, I mean, we all need to be able to protect ourselves, but if you think of it in that line, then maybe it ties into what I, I was going to suggest next. You know, for years, people have said, why not allow marijuana for medical use? People who most need to be able to help themselves. Well, Indiana just allowed people in the state there who most need to protect themselves the opportunity to do that. Now, this is still illegal on a federal level. So uh, it's really going to take action by people. But people did this on marijuana. They said, hey, you know what? It's illegal on a federal level. It's legal on a state level. Let's just start growing it, buying and selling it. Why couldn't they use the same path on sawed-off shotguns, even though uh, the NFA, National Firearms Act, I think of 1933 or whatever it was way back when, says you can't do this. Let me, so, let, let me take you on that one for just a second, and I'm not really nitpicking on you. I just It's important that we understand certain words, and, and here's an example of that. So the sawed-off shotgun, that sounds intimidating. Right? Yeah, it does. That's, right? That's an evil thing. Do you know there's absolutely no law prohibiting a sawed-off shotgun? If I take a... If I take a shotgun with a 28-inch barrel and saw two inches off of it, I violated no laws whatsoever. I didn't what's, know that. What's actually prohibited is the length of the barrel being oh. under a certain amount and the overall length of the gun being over a certain amount. So it's not sawing the barrel off that's the problem. It's the overall – it's basically saying it's small enough that it could be concealed, and but it's being regulated as a long gun. Okay. That so if sense. I want to have a handgun, uh huh, it's a shotgun. Well, that's okay too, as long as the barrel's not too long, because then it's a long gun being basically it's a it's a handgun being regulated as a long gun. So it's this place in between, and with rifles they call them SBRs or short barreled rifles. So right. I think it would be an SBS, a short barreled shotgun. I might have just made that up. I don't know. Um. 
But that's what really it was all about is that because it's short enough. Now, the way most of them got that short, right, was a guy would take, uh, you know, an old L.C. Smith or something, take a hacksaw to it. And, and yeah, and they're saying, well, that can be used for crimes. But we, you know, whether you're a gun expert or not, you know this, the majority of crimes today are committed with handguns. Right. I mean, they're not committed with sawed-off shotguns and assault rifles, whatever the hell that means anymore, because <laughs> that's been completely ruined. But just so people know, like, sawed-off shotgun is not a real thing when it comes to the regulation. It's only about the length. And if, if you want to cut your 28-inch barrel down to 21 inches, that's perfectly acceptable. It's when you go beyond, I believe it's 16 inches. The barrel is less than 16 inches. The overall length, I'm not going to pull that one out of my butt because I might get it wrong, that it becomes illegal because it's too short. I really actually appreciate you explaining that to me. Now, is it is it correct that these short barrel shotguns are better for self-defense in close quarters, like I was mentioning? I think they can be. I think that it, 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 it depends. Okay. Right? I mean, to be... To be fair to government, which I never want to be. <laughs> I never want to be fair to government. The whole point of the, the, the sawed-off shotgun when it, when it was originally done that way by gangsters and thugs, which is probably why the government doesn't like it, they don't want competition, is you take, you know, a cheap shotguns are cheap, especially back in the day they were you know, one of the cheapest effective weapons you get your hands on. You get a double-barrel, single-barrel shotgun, you cut the stock off at a pistol grip, You hack it down to about 12 inches, and yeah, it'll fit right inside a jacket, and when you hit somebody with that, they go down. So there was a propensity for them to be used in criminal activity. It's not that there wasn't, but there's a propensity for people to use cars in criminal activity. True. Right? And, True. and generally, if you're going to be a criminal, you'd rather have a fast car than a slow one so you can get away. Right? Or you might actually be more predisposed if you were a, an outlaw gang to use something far more maneuverable than a car and able to make a lot of people be able to work together like a pack, like, oh, I don't know, a motorcycle, right? So there might be a propensity for, for some people to use motorcycles in an organized crime, but I didn't take away Michael, Bold Michael Bolden's Ninja, right? Or mm -hmm. Jack Spierko's Harley, because somebody else would use it for that, that thing. So I'm not saying that they've never been used. Now, there is an advantage to a short weapon in a close quarters situation, no okay. doubt. I don't know that you get that much advantage going from a 16-inch barreled like police model shotgun down to a 12-inch barreled gun, but I think that should be your freedom of choice. Well, I think that's what's actually, and so the Indiana law it, that they're repealing the prohibition, they're basically repealing it all on uh, just the, the, the barrel length. I did read some quotes that it makes sense to me now that you're explaining this about how they're really not sawed off. Yeah. So, but, and I think that's very positive. And the idea that, like, look, there's no more state prohibition. So the state law enforcement, at least in theory, shouldn't be actually after anybody who manufactures, sells, possesses, whatever, transfers one of these firearms in Indiana. The question is, will enough people do Basically, what the pot smokers did here in California back in the mid-90s when they went in alone on, on weed, will they do the same type of thing in Indiana in the years to come? I don't know. I sure hope so. I think at some point, gun rights activists are going to stop waiting for court decisions that strike down something, but then you find out a few years later it's not really what you wanted. I think eventually gun rights activists are going to have to kind of throw the, well, let's wait for the law to change mentality out and start living more free again, whether government at any level wants them to or not. Yeah, definitely. I, I would definitely agree with that. 
Um, you mentioned some of like the opposition and what have you. I mean, what amazed me, and this wasn't even a Tenth Amendment issue. This was like getting Texas into the the, the same level of liberty as a state like oh, I don't know Virginia, uh, which is insane to me. But we finally got open carry passed down here. Mm-hmm. We've been only a concealed carry state for for handguns. And you mentioned opposition from law enforcement. I have to tell you, it was our biggest opposition, and it was from the big police departments like Austin and Houston and San Antonio with police chiefs saying, we speak on behalf of, of, of Texas's existing concealed carry holders. They don't want this. Hold on. First of all, you don't speak for me, right? You're right. not an elected person. You're a bureaucrat that got promoted in your position. You don't speak for me. That, that, that's the first part of it. And second of all, that's not true because it was con- it was concealed carry holders by and large that wanted this passed. But it is interesting to me that it was law enforcement leading the roadblock And I wonder, I, you know, I'm pretty big on pattern recognition, and you brought some stuff up, and then we talked about it, about how they, you know, they bring all this equipment in, and they give these guys these surveillance systems and all. And then uh-huh. you mentioned, like, those, so this general comes and talks to the committee guy in Utah, and then you, you just wonder if maybe there's some federal coercion there. Like, you know, we put a lot of money into the city of Houston, Chief. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? We put a lot of money in here, and... I'm not saying if you lose this fight that we'll take it all away, but I'm saying if maybe maybe if you're not on our side, then maybe we're not maybe we're not so hip on on uh, on continuing it. So you at least need to be making some statements in front of some committees, and because so, I just don't put it past the mafia. I mean the government to do things like that. Well, on top of it, you have to think about asset forfeiture. Local law enforcement gets a lot of its funding through something called asset forfeiture, basically taking people's property without being convicted of a crime. And a lot of that actually goes through federal. So when local law enforcement helps federal agencies carry out an enforcement action, they can get up to 80% of the cash money that's either just taken out of like a cash register or sold at federal auctions. So there's a, they know this is happening and to give up on that is serious business. The unfortunate fact is it's not just the right to keep and bear arms, but it is across the board on almost any issue we deal with, especially uh, gun rights and on surveillance. The number one opposition is from law law enforcement organizations. That probably means, and I mean, I, I think about this and I'm like, is it just some kind of bureaucratic establishment that's doing it? Is it a lobbying organization? Do the rank and file even know this is happening? I don't know all the answers to those questions, but it certainly is an absolute fact that we experience more opposition from law enforcement organizations on protecting privacy and the right to keep and bear arms than from anybody. I think you have to look at a lot of things here. So, like, one of the things I would say is, like, there's a little town that, unfortunately, last night got hit with a, a tornado just west of us called Mineral Wells, a small town, and they have a police chief, and he was there last night when his place got hit because it, they, they it got a direct hit on the police department. And what is that guy going to do when he's done being a police chief of Mineral Wells? I don't want to speak for him, but I'm going to bet he's going to retire and be thanked for his service and go on with his life in, in, the, in the town of Mineral Wells. I don't think that's generally the the planned path of a chief of police in a city like Dallas or Houston or Atlanta or, or what have you. People that rise to that level in a bureaucracy generally, not always, but generally are wanting what? Where's the next rung? They're going to run mm-hmm. for office. They're going to get into the a, a federal enforcement agency. They're going to get appointed to some type of committee chair or whatever. And I think there's a certain point 
in, in a certain size of your bureaucracy where the only people that get there are people with a lot of ambition to go as high as possible. And when they hit the top of that bureaucracy, they're always looking, where's my next, where's my next place to go? And they're willing to make deals. So I think that's part of it. And then the other thing I think from talking to cops is cops feel their job is to arrest people, right? That's what they're trained to do. You arrest people. Right. And arrest bad guys. I think most cops are not, not intentionally dicks anyway. I think that, like, they don't want to go out and arrest you, Michael. They, they really don't, unless you're at an activist thing where you're a... <laughs> then they definitely And do. you need to be maced and arrested. But I mean, most of the time, I don't think they really are interested in arresting Michael Bolden or Jack Spirico. But they do want to arrest bad guys. Now, they don't give a damn what charge they can make stick if they believe the bad guy is in fact a bad guy. I pulled you over. You are a dope dealer. I know you're a dope dealer. I've been after you a long time. And damn it, I screwed up. Even though I had a reason to pull you over, you have no dope on you. But, oh, look at this. Oh, you have a gun. You don't have a permit for this? Oh, well, it was within your, you know, whatever. Whatever law in whatever municipality or state happens to make that stick as a charge, they might pull you over with it. Realize you're a decent guy. Go, did you know that you're in New Jersey and you're not supposed to have that there? It's supposed to be locked in your trunk. Yeah, okay, then go ahead and do that now. And, and, but if you're the bad guy, right, then I'm going to make that stick. Cause I, but that's letting them become the jury, basically, to do selective enforcement. But when you start talking about removing these laws, you, it, it's, it's like telling a, a carpenter, I'm going to take some of those tools out of your kit. Mm. I think there's some feeling of that. Legitimate and illegitimate in, in law enforcement. Because my response to that has always been, if you don't catch them doing something illegal, you have no reason to be arresting them. Well, I think that that kind of just amplifies the need for the principle behind like organizations like Oath Keepers or CSPOA, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officer, working in communities to educate law enforcement on their role under the Constitution, not just state and federal, but state constitution as well, that they shouldn't necessarily. But I mean, and we talked about this a little bit or you talked about a little bit more about how it's it's hard to actually encourage people to kind of defy the status quo. But that is an important part of it, because, you know, if you're trying to fight with the neighborhood neighbor down the street who happens to be in the sheriff's department, a cop that makes things a little bit more difficult to advance liberty. So we want to try to get as many people on our side as possible and education is very important on that. And I think like, so I, you, you know, we learn a lot about checks and balances in school. You know, <laughs> when you go to school, like, you know, the, 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 the legislators that check on the executive and the judicial, et cetera. And I think that, well, we don't go far enough with that because there's a lot more checks and balances in the system of a republic that we're supposed to have anyway. And one is, okay, so we have these duly appointed officers of the peace, by the way, that's what you're supposed to be. Um, and if they all say, you know what, no, not doing it, not enforcing that law. That's another check. And then there's the, the jury box is another check. So if you, you can pass a law, you can take people to, in front of court, and if you get to a position where there's enough people out there serving on juries to just go, not guilty. But we provided all the evidence, not guilty. Then that's yet another check. And I think that's, you know, you're, when you start talking about some levels of civil disobedience, sometimes they don't look like civil disobedience. And that's, that's something we've purposely pushed out of the American education system that, you know, the, the concept that you might actually just say not guilty because you don't agree with the law. That sounds heretical today, but that's, 
that's why there's jury trials. A lot of conservatives don't look at, and I see this all the time when I speak to people, they look at civil disobedience or disobeying law as a liberal thing, or that's yeah. what the left does. Well, that, that, that's nonsense. James Madison, I mean, you can't call him a progressive. He's known <laughs> as the father of the Constitution. He wrote specifically, word for word, how do you stop the feds? Quote, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. James Madison said specifically, you should be doing this. Individuals and states should be doing this all over the place to stop federal programs that are either, even if it's constitutional and you just don't like it, Madison said, you should use this tactic and you should use it widely. So when they say they want you to do something, you're supposed to refuse to comply. When they want to enforce a national education system by funding Common Core, like Tennessee did, they they say, well, we're not going to participate in this anymore. Or in New York, where parents are saying, you know what, the kids aren't going to participate. By the thousands, they're not going to participate in the testing. Stop participating in their the oppressive system, and that's the only way to bring it back to where it's supposed to be. Boy, there's another one that just tells me the mentality of people. So I don't listen to radio much anymore because, well, I don't pretty <laughs> much go anywhere. I have my farm to run it off. But occasionally I have to go somewhere. And I might put the radio on. I was listening to AM radio the other day. I went to pick up a load of dirt, and uh, which was more productive than picking up radio signal, by the way. But I'm listening to this radio station, and there's a you know right wing AM radio station, and this this host is on, and he's talking about Common Core and how there's standardized testing in Texas, but not officially Common Core, but there's elements of Common Core, and his school has some of those, and they have these standardized tests. He goes through this whole thing about how standardized testing is wrong how it shouldn't be being done, and how there's nothing the state can do if you opt your child out. And then concludes with, but I'm not opting my son out. Wow. What? And basically, he's like, I think it's better that we work through the existing system and get this stuff stopped than, than to, you know, to, to wait, wait a minute. What? And, and, and you could tell a caller called in and kind of called him out a little bit on it. And what he, what he actually ended up saying is, I don't want to make things hard for my kid. It'll just be easier for him if they do this. Well, I mean, I get that. People don't want their lives to be more difficult. Yeah. You know, I mean, and really, if, if I get how people want to just be able to have their life with their family, they don't want to be looking over their shoulder. But the fact is, we're looking over our shoulder all the time. So uh, sooner or later, we got to, you know, we got to do something about it. You know, the the the, the old show from the seventies. I played an outtake on that recently. Network. No, I don't know that one. Network. Oh, there's a there's a part where it's this this anchor who's getting retired early, and he's supposed to just come in and say goodbye, and he just tweaks, and <laughs> he basically tells everybody, you know, you got to get mad first, and you got to say you're not going to take it anymore. And the 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 thing is, the network just totally uses it and. The exact opposite of what he wants at the end, but, of course. but, but there's there, there's a, a a part in that though where when when he when he's he's talking about this he says, I know what you want. You just want people to leave you alone. Just give me my air conditioner and my radial tires and leave me alone. And he says, yeah. well, I'm not gonna leave you alone. Right. So in other words, and that's the system. The system's not going to leave you alone anyway. So you can either do something about it or you can be controlled by it. I, I've often said that I think that, that America, you are being presented with this choice right now. Stand or kneel. Right. You're either going to stand for something or you're going to kneel in front of your freaking rulers. And it's your choice. And, and, and kneeling, I just don't think is a way for a man to be. So plant some hemp. Plant some hemp, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
not this state. I need my state to pass that law that Colorado did before I do that. Well, and, and that makes sense. And I like the idea. That's why we actually work as that kind of it's kind of this holistic solution. We realize that it does take individuals to actually take action, but individuals will have more courage and have less risk of personal harm when the state actually legalizes what the federal government prohibits because the federal government relies so much on state and local law enforcement to carry out the enforcement of whatever they want. So that's a very important thing. Work with the state legislators or even your your local town council to get something advanced that you believe in, whether it's raw milk, whether it's hemp, whether it's right to keep and bear arms, or like in Arizona, they banned the Department of Insurance there from enforcing any violations of Obamacare. So Obamacare, <laughs> sometime this summer, will have no enforcement mechanism in Arizona. So that's uh, interesting. This, this is this is really cool and creative stuff that we can do at every level other than Washington, D.C. Well, and I think it's the only way because, again, I keep petting the fox and my chickens still keep... You even got a new fox. I got a new fox. I got a gray one instead of a red one, right? <laughs> Maybe I need a blue one instead of a red one. I, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the mentality that people seem to have. Like, we just get the right fox. You know, he'll police himself. You know, you can, here's the thing about the fox, right? Not only can you not let the fox guard the, the hen house, you can't even bargain with the fox. You can't tell the fox, listen, I'll tell you what, man, you're a fox. You can go out in the woods and you can find some of your own stuff. I will be cool with you if you only eat one chicken a week and keep all the other foxes away from my hen house. Fox won't take that deal. Why? It's not what foxes do. Right? So a federal politician's not going to take the deal to preserve your liberty because it's not what they do. It's absolutely the antithesis of what they do. The nature of government. So you mentioned law enforcement. Are there any other groups that have worked the hardest, you know, out there to oppose what you're doing? Any other groups that are really getting in the way of getting some of this stuff done? Republicans. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, uh, well, it's it's establishment Republicans that run committees. So in Texas, there were more bills to effectively nullify some federal program or another than any state in the country this year. Almost none of them got through because almost none of them were even given a hearing or they were giving hearings so late that there was no way. I mean, if people followed this, this crazy last week of the calendar, there was no way to get them to the House floor or the Senate floor for a vote. So these are the establishment guys that are blocking things from happening. Or there was this Speaker of the House in Missouri that just got busted having a, a, a romantic relationship with a teenage intern. Well, you know, in Missouri, the only way that a bill can can move forward is if it first goes through a hearing and committee, like in most states. But in Missouri, you don't have to assign a bill to a hearing or to a committee until the last day of the session. So this guy basically took any bill that was addressing federal power and just didn't assign it anywhere. So none of them could be heard by the public or debated or discussed. Well, thankfully, the guy's going to be gone now because he got busted with this uh, this kid that he was having a relationship with. But uh, these type of people, these establishment Republicans are working just as hard and, in fact, blocking more stuff in some situations than the establishment Democrats, because a lot of the establishment Democrats who have no principles are very happy to say, well, yeah, let's pass an anti-drone bill or let's move an anti-NSA bill or some kind of thing that's very popular with the left to advance privacy. So these real kind of stalwarts on the right 
are, are creating a lot of problems, but we're still getting things through. This year, we've seen somewhere, and there's about 15 states still active this session, but somewhere about 10 to 15 percent success rate. And if you compare that in just one year, if you compare that uh, with the success rate of positive bills on the, the federal level, I mean, we're looking at like zero percent out of the last 100 or so that have passed, maybe one percent. And we're talking about 10 percent of, of bills that we've been tra- tracking, uh, maybe as high as 15 this year alone, just on the state level. Yeah, and I think that regardless of the party, there's there's usually some corporate interest behind a lot of these sabotages. Um, it's just the, the case right now that there's a lot of establishment Republicans in uh, majority positions, sure. right? Like the, that's the latest swing. I mean, an example of, of another group is, you know, the, these folks in West Virginia work so hard to get provisions for raw milk into yes. West Virginia, which is a, is absolutely a, you know, a federal supremacy, you know, kickback and basically saying, no, we're going to, we're going to set something up in our state. Like, I don't know. It's like 30 other, 38 other states have done something, uh, to allow for raw milk and it passed overwhelming. Yes. In the Virginia legislature and a Democrat governor vetoed it under health safety concerns. Yeah, of course. Right. 10,000 years of people being able to successfully drink raw milk without killing themselves on a daily basis. And we have health safety concerns from the West Virginia Dairy Farmers Association. Yeah, actually, food freedom is an issue that Tenth Amendment Center hasn't been really involved in, but I've wanted to. It's just that I don't know the issue well sure. enough. So raw milk is one that we're definitely going to get involved in starting this next year because we recognize that the feds some years ago, back in the 80s, banned the in- interstate commerce of raw milk, which then affects how the states are going to do it. But we realize that that interstate ban will have no effect if basically, or almost no effect, if all the states start legalizing it anyway. So if you can get it everywhere, who cares what the feds ban? So we're going to start pr- pushing that. But it's something that maybe one of the listeners can to go to our website and send some information. But we basically need to learn about other federal laws, regulations, and rules that restrict local farmers. How do they impact? And the more that we understand, the more that I understand this personally, the more that we can actually develop strategies to actually deal with that and help advance uh, food freedom. Like it, it can't all just be the locals that are causing the problems on this. I think there has to be some, you know, chain of command where there's maybe a federal program or some federal funding or something, or even the locals are enforcing federal regulations. But it's something that we could use some help on actually understanding a little better. Yeah, raw milk though is an interesting one to look at from the civil disobedience standpoint because it's yes. one of the places you can get really creative. So, for instance, there's some states that say you can't have raw milk, but you can have milk from your own cow. So they do what's called herd share agreements. So what happens is you and I and two other families get a cow together, and then we have Farmer Tom take care of our cow for us, and we all own a share in the cow. Because I don't know if you know much about cows, but one cow makes way more milk than the average family would want in a week. So Farmer Tom takes care of our cows and milks our cow for a fee, but it's like it's a cow maintenance fee, right? It's our cow, so it's our milk. West Virginia specifically outlawed that. Man. So there's other states that have, that, have, that have outlawed that, but have not outlawed the use of raw milk for pet food. So mm. then you get creative and you go, you market for for pet food only, not for human consumption. West Virginia is so oppressive they actually outlawed that too to close wow. the loophole. Well, you know, I'm just saying there's some farms in West Virginia. One I might have something to do with that that sells raw milk as a soil amendment. 
and says that it's for amending organic soils and for organic soil amendments and to use this product in a violation not inconsistent with its labeling is a violation of federal and state law. But it would be good enough to drink if you wanted to, and we recommend you keep it refrigerated. Well, so it's always a freaking way, right? Like Darren Daughtry in Australia, they have some similar problems with raw milk, and they label theirs fresh raw milk, perfect for calves. Oh, wow. So you can get, you start to see a lot of patterns there that you could use maybe, because that's what you're looking at is how can I take the pattern from healthcare and, and apply it to guns or yes, guns? Yes. Applied to healthcare. So I don't know where that goes from there, but those are just all different ways that people have said, you know what? We're just not going to, like, do you really think they can afford to send a federal SWAT team to Tommy's house to see what's in his kids' Cheerios? And they'll do it once in a while, but they can't do it all the time. Yeah, states actually, or some manufacturers actually did this during alcohol prohibition. They would print, you know, like how to, uh, you know, run a still on some kind of packaging, but they weren't actually, you know, so people, <laughs> but this can't be used. It's not allowed to be used in this way. This is an interesting thing. So, um, yeah. I, I like the concept and I, I'm really, I'm really hot on, on getting us involved in supporting the raw milk movement and hopefully we'll be able to get involved in some other things as well. Because again, like you're saying, this is pattern and the more that we do this and apply it to other issues, the more liberty that we can have just as a general level. And that really is the, the long-term goal. Whether you're thinking about why did the founders create this system that they created? Well, they didn't create it just so they could have like a weak central government and a bunch of like really tyrannical states. They actually had a goal in mind. They felt that, you know, keeping this power dispersed was the best way to advance liberty. So if we keep the advancement of liberty in mind and everything that we're doing, at least here at 10th Amendment Center, and I guess in, in other work, then that then we can actually start putting that into practice on various things. Well, I, and I think you would find a lot of traction from that world, the raw milk world, because that people have been asking for years. Yeah, that there's a there's a whole fanatical group of people, and that's what you need is you need fanatics. I'm relatively right? smart, but this this issue, like the the food free, I'm like it, it's taken me a long time to really get up to speed. But I'm grateful for. I mean, and I'm sure some of your listeners have sent some information in the past because like uh, we've got we actually have a lot of supporters that have actually come to us from our conversations together. Like, oh, I I heard you talk with Jack. You know, what can I do to help out? And so <laughs> this it, it's been great talking. Talking with you these few times already, and hopefully, you know, tapping into the knowledge base of your audience can help me do more things for liberty. I think. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's the thing is that like, and this is what I think a lot of people, and you you mentioned Republicans getting in the way, and I I think it's Republicans that struggle with this more than Democrats. Not that they both don't, but for you to have your liberty, the people you don't agree with need to have theirs. Yeah. Right. And, and there's so much of that blocking. And I, I you know, I, I know one place that's coming up is the marijuana issue. It took hell and high water to get the oil, uh, for seizures, uh, passed in Texas. And that seems right. like that just happened. You are not going to get high on this stuff. It, 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 it's preposterous, but there's this, um, there's this sense of morality because we've been told it's bad for so long. It must be that really holds some people back. And I've even had people say, well, we can't do that. We have to have morality. Ron Paul had a good thing in some debate a few years ago where he said, you know, hey, if they legalize heroin, are you going to run out and start doing it? I think the morality comes from the individual. So even <laughs> if you disagree with something and you think that something is bad, 
you know, just because they legalize it, I'm not going to be a heroin addict. I mean, it still is my personal choice. When we get down to everything, it really gets down to individual liberty, individual citizen, you know, actions, individual choices. And, and laws really don't change that. No, my, my silver bullet, uh, rebut for people that say, you know, we need to keep drugs away from our children and out of our schools and we can't have these drugs is, let me tell you something. The federal government and the state government has a whole bunch of these places called jails and prisons. Yeah. They are surrounded and guarded 24-7. People are woken up every hour and shook, shook down. Uh, everything that goes in and out is inspected and they can't keep drugs out of there. So don't insult my intelligence and infer to me that a law is going to keep drugs out of our schools. Exactly. And usually there's no response to that because that's just, there's a wire that just is sparking in the brain. and That's the crusher not, right there. Where does it go? I don't, there, it's like the, the person that gets the job telemarketing and they say all the answers are in the book. And then the person says the reason I'm not buying from you today is I'm going to kill myself. Where, I don't. Like, I don't know what to say to that. And I think that, but that's the truth. Like, how can you look the American people in the face and say you, your, your, your law is going to keep drugs away from our children when you can't keep drugs out of prison? Yeah, laws banning things are generally either ineffective or they have unintended consequences, or maybe they're intended behind the scenes. But laws actually allowing people to do something that another level of government prohibits has been has proven to be very effective and we can see that on weed we can see it now on hemp we're seeing it start to happen on um, restricting people's choices their end of life choices on what treatments they might risk for themselves and hopefully we'll start seeing that on the right to keep and bear arms on school choice on all kinds of other things as well yeah there's definitely unintended consequences i'll tell you who is more opposed uh, to legalizing marijuana in the state of Texas than uh, the, the, the Bible-thumping Southern Baptist uh, Republican constituency, the guy selling marijuana. Of right? course. That guy, right? That's the guy who doesn't want it legalized. That is the, the person in, with the biggest opposition, yeah. uh, the guy that's selling basically ditch weed for, I don't know what it sells for, but for a profit. Uh, you know, it doesn't want... Uh, a high quality product that's available in a clean, shiny store available to anybody that wants it because his business is gone. And, and that's an unintended consequence. It's like, I, I was talking to my, my, my brother-in-law, the cop recently too about this. And he said, you don't understand. He said, these, this marijuana today is so much stronger than it used to be back when, you know, like when we were in college or my dad tells me this. And, and you know what I, I told him? I said, well, you guys did that. He said, what? I said, it's your fault. If you guys weren't arresting anybody for this stuff for the last 50 years, people wouldn't have been growing in closets and figured out how to do that. Right. Right. It would be in Joe's backyard. You wouldn't buy it from anybody. So you guys created this, 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 uh, higher, uh, potency stuff is through this, this, this. So there's another unintended consequence, right? Um, because where was all that stuff 50 years ago? Well, you know, it didn't exist yet. And it's not that long ago that all that stuff was legal in this country. There's a, uh, an ad that goes around on Facebook from like 1900 or something, and it's a cough syrup with marijuana and opium in it. Yeah. Well, and Harry Brown used to talk about how you could go into a drugstore and pick up heroin, for example, but the streets weren't filled with a bunch of heroin addicts. It's the illegality that causes a problem, and I think that's just a general principle when you try to ban something. It's like it, all, the war on poverty creates more poverty. The war on illiteracy creates more illiteracy, and the same, you know, same issue with war on terrorism. Every time they try to block something or ban something, they make things worse. And the positive thing is that the, the federal war on marijuana 
on it is in its last days. Whether it's, done. it's it it's it's over. It's it's done. The thing is, will people take what we've learned from that process? Individuals and states say no. Not trying to overturn things in federal court because that didn't work, and put it into practice on other things. I think they will because we're going to keep pushing until yeah. They do. So yeah. I'm going to stay positive. Okay. <laughs> and in five years, let's revisit this. Yeah. And find out. All right. And I this. hope you're right. And I well, well then you are way that. wrong. When I say that, there's just so many people that I just think about and go, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Man, man, it is very easy to get overwhelmed, especially like – and I try to avoid like my home feed on Facebook because it's – with the political people, it's either filled with, oh, Hillary's going to destroy the world. Oh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Rubio, it's just this political yeah. hackmanship or it's filled with like who's wearing what or who's dating who and it's just a bunch of just surface nonsense. But I do think that there are enough people who are willing to put their neck on the line a little bit. It, that it'll make a difference and the more direction so if, i don't think anybody should try to get involved in every issue i think people should find something that's important to them and work on it you worked on concealed carry you're really involved in raw milk i mean that's two right there there yeah. could be more but most people i think should just do what they can to live as good a life as possible with their family and then find one thing to kind of get involved in and when you get 50 different issues that people are starting to defy government power on Man, that'll make a huge difference. I think it'll create a domino effect in time. Sounds like a very positive form of anarchy to me, so I'm all about that. Um, seriously, man, this has been great having you on. Um, I told my wife the other day when she got you scheduled, I said, it, she goes, how much do you need from him for the interview? I said, not much. It's like talking to a brother I didn't know I had. <laughs> nice. I love it. Thank you very much, Jack. But, I really appreciate it. On that note, how can people learn more about the work you're doing, get involved, stay in touch with you, that type of thing? 10thamendmentcenter.com, all spelled out, T-E-N-T-H. I want people to read stuff. I want people to share it. And I want people, there's a button that comes up that says get involved. And that's really important as well. So all just those three things, read, share, and get involved. Awesome. Well, I, I, I certainly appreciate the work you're doing and uh, the attitude you bring to it. And it's great to be able to talk to you again, Michael. And again, as always, you're always welcome back. Uh, on the show anytime you want to come back and talk to us. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jack. I really appreciate it. All right, folks. With that, this is the Jack Spirico today along with Michael Bolton helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah.